hello there, and welcome back to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. My name's Alicia. Thanks for joining us for another week, y'all. We're excited to have you here this week, covering two ladies who found their tickets to ride, and they don't care. <laughs> who do you have this week? This week, I'm covering the trashy divorce of Dita Von Tees, who was very briefly married to Marilyn Manson. They dated a long time. Married less than a year, and after the events of this week, maybe a wise move with that very quick marriage and moving on. Yeah, Marilyn Manson has been in the news this week. Yeah. Not for any good reason. And Stacy, this week, you're bringing us... I have uh, the lawyer Johnny Cochran, who... I had no idea. ...lived a double-plus life for at least many, many years. It was... I didn't know going in. I thought I was going to be telling a very different story, but uh, no, that, that was it. So a general caution and maybe a content warning. We are going to be talking in our stories about some intimate partner abuse this week. If this is not your kind of trashy divorces episode, we get it. We'll be back next Sunday with two entirely different stories to enchant and delight you we get it if it's not your thing we love you my story there's a there's a few moments of my story towards the end that are particularly terrible just wanted y'all to know that want you to protect your own trashy hearts and be forewarned we want to help normalize not listening to stuff that's not your thing yeah so there you go yeah if you don't want to hear we love you. About we'll the news you. this week. See you next week. Skip on through it. Before we get started, you know I have a vintage mirror I know, around here I know. somewhere. And it's magic too, I it's think. It's magic. Mm-hmm. And I see some names to give some huge thanks and praise to you for joining Patreon this week where there is no end to the trash candy. Shall I kick us off? Please. All right. Well, thank you so much to Inumali A, Elizabeth W, Anna W, Suzanne R, Allie M, Lauren F. Emily B, Catherine N, Missy L, Lindsay, Stephanie R, and Stephanie H. Thank y'all so much. We have a new super supporter to thank this week, Kate H. Oh my gosh, our Patreon family. Y'all are all terrific. We are so grateful for your support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sunday listeners. Thank you, Patreon folks. When you got a ticket to ride. What do you do, Alicia? You better go, go, go. Alicia, I understand you have a new favorite ex-wife this week. Yeah. So some of you are parents, and apparently it's not cool to have favorites. And truly, each trashy divorce we cover deserves its moment in the sun to ripen and fester. And I never want to diminish the tales of any of our divorcees. We always want things to fester. <laughs> Secretly, I do have my favorite ex-wives. Dita has made it to the list. Oh. Laminated. Ah. Yeah. I love it when gumption just pops right on up in a story for the week. And I've got some gumption in excess. Today is the trashy divorce of Dita Von Teese and Marilyn Manson. <sighs> this one's been in the papers. Well, often requested, and I've been putting it off because it's the terrible kind of trashy, but this does seem like the week to tackle it. Yes, it does. It does. 
So Dita has the gumption. Her ex-husband, well, maybe the trashiest in the most terrible way on the list to the other side, I will let y'all decide. So you can kind of see how these two get together. Both born with different names and they adopt other personas to do their performance thing, although in very different areas. Heather Renee Sweet, Hmm. Libra girl. She's born September 28th. Grows up in small town Michigan. Middle sister of three. Are you telling me that a sweet small town girl ended up with Marilyn Manson? Yep. Their family moves to California. She loves ballet, which is starts the dancing thing. But she realizes that, you know, I am never going to be a professional ballerina. How do I still do the dance thing that I love? Uh, Heather, Heather Renee, loves to watch old movies with her mom. All the dames and the broads that are all my favorites, too. Like... We learned it by watching you, y'all. I mean, maybe she does learn a lot from those dames and broads. Uh, Hedy Lamar, Rita Hayworth, and Dita Parlow, who is the silent film star that Heather will take to style herself Dita. She will break out with fetish and glamour modeling, kind of star on the rise. Von Tease is an accident. She restyles herself to a different uh, Von Trees. Playboy misspells it, and well, you roll with what you got. But she's a burlesque performer, is that correct? She is. She's the queen of burlesque. Well, then Von Tease is perfect. I know. You hear it? I, I'm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she is the queen of burlesque. If you've seen her perform, you'll never forget it. She's talented and lovely and... Quite old-fashioned, really, in her personality. She loves the vintage stuff. She loves the style and the feel of days gone by and pulls it off. She's got blonde hair, but it's been dyed black. She dyes it herself and probably will forever. But Heather Dita really does style herself into a new persona in a healthy kind of way. I know the things I like. I know the things I prefer. She's got all kinds of brands, associations with everybody. Dita's a star. The groom. (laughs) Brian Warner. January 5th, Capricorn man. Brian Warner is born and raised in Canton, Ohio. His family's going to move to Florida, where Brian is working on a journalism degree in a little community college. You say Florida, and you don't even need to say more. So doing this like journalism degree, he's getting some interviews with musicians, including Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. And Brian's going to start his band in 1989. And his whole band restyles their names to taking a famous star and a serial killer. Okay. Let's be edgy. We're going against the grain. Against the culture. Important to have interests. I mean, his thing is different. It gets him noticed. So the 1990s is going to move along for Marilyn Manson now at a pretty rapid pace. Awards and albums and films and apparently just being so out there with your act. Like, he's the poster on the wall for a lot of kids and adults. And his songs are just straight up promotion of fascism, the N-word. Uh, throwing back every boundary and perspective back into your face. Yeah, I mean, I knew his work was super transgressive. I honestly was not 
I don't know. Like I never got into his music, so I, 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 I did not know much of the same. But you know, we've lived through mm-hmm. some decades now, and I really do get a clever, ironic performance that is part of an act mm-hmm. where satire becomes part of the act, and it is done. Stephen Colbert, ironically arty with the whole cold, like you get it. Mm-hmm. It's a I get performance, sure, ironic art. That's not Marilyn Manson's act. The joke's on y'all. There never was any act. It turns out he is the show. There's there's, there's no difference. I don't see between performer on stage and oh, I'm just doing this ironically and. I really am a quiet, sensitive kid from Akron, Ohio inside. Right. So the, like the disturbing transgressions you're saying were not an act. Well, we, they're, they're not quite as revealed. Let's go ahead and, and talk about how it happens. So the 90s, good to Marilyn, good to Dita. Good to a lot of people. Good to me. Into good, the 90s good to you. has Marilyn dating Rose McGowan. Okay. They're engaged in February of 1999, Hmm. but the engagement is broken off in January 2001. Rose McGowan will cite my favorite, one of my favorite phrases on trashy divorces, irreconcilable differences, which I guess in 2001, based on the events of last week, is probably as far as you're going to go. Yeah. And Rose McGowan famously outed uh, Harvey Weinstein for his correct absolute awfulness. So pretty terrible. Sounds like she's been through it. I would say that's accurate. I like when you drop irreconcilable differences, but you're not actually married. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting approach. Oh, you're going to find irreconcilable differences comes up quite a lot in this story. So Marilyn, it turns out, has been a fan of Dita's for a long time. He's been trying to get her in a music video. Dita will go see Marilyn on his birthday at a show, January 5th, 2001. She will bring a bottle of absinthe backstage. Five days later, Dita's still on his tour bus. Perhaps Rose McGowan sees her future and cuts her losses because their engagement is broken. 2001, Dita and Marilyn meet the same week. Yeah. So, perhaps I... It's all happening around the same time. I mean, props on the absinthe, though. That's classy. That was good thinking. Want to make a splash? Oh, Oh, I brought a six-pack. No, I brought absinthe. I don't have this in the story, but it is terrible. Marilyn Manson has created his own absinthe line, and he calls it Mansith. And apparently it's terrible. I'm sorry. There are mixed reviews on the quality of the Mansith. Anyway, not important. Dita and Marilyn, drawn together. And Dita will admit that the reinvention that each of them has have done to themselves is kind of part of the attraction and the appeal. She says, I think we always had a lot in common that way, that we both created characters for ourselves and we're both from middle America. They date. From January 2001 on, Marilyn will propose in March of 2004 with a seven-carat European round-cut diamond engagement ring from the 1930s. All systems go. The wedding happens November 28, 2005. This is the first wedding. Private ceremony in L.A. 
Because the real, or at least the public wedding, happens a week later, on December 3rd, 2005, in an Irish castle that belongs to a friend, and this is the affair. If you've watched 2008 Sex and the City movie, where Carrie gets married and does the photo shoot with Vogue in the Vivian Westwood dress and the wedding becomes the centerfold, this is the wedding they have. Dita will wear a purple silk taffeta gown that Vivian Westwood designs. Her hat is by Stephen Jones. Her shoes are by Christian Louis Vuitton. Uh, It's photographed. It's a thing. It's a big deal. And even Dita's like, I don't think this is quite right from the beginning. I'm just like, how do you like have a buddy who owns an Irish castle? Like, how is that a thing? Okay. In an interview in 2016, Dita says, I was with him for seven years. We were married for only a year. And I felt like getting married was sort of like the kiss of death for us Mm. because it was sort of like the nail in the coffin. I felt kind of obliged to go through with the ceremony in a way because there was so much writing on it. Vogue was photographing it, and it was in this castle, and it was like this theater, right? So, like, even from the beginning, there's part, trust your intuition, y'all, trust your gut. The wedding happens, regardless. Fast forward 11 months to December 2006. Okay. Couple's been married a year. Not even a year, yeah. Okay. Christmas Eve. Something happened. No one knows what happened. But something happened. Enough that a moving truck comes on Christmas Eve day, which FYI is a Sunday. Wow. Stuff is put into a rental home. Dita books a flight to Boise, Idaho to go spend the holidays with her family and never looks back. What had happened? What had happened was, we're probably never going to know. I would. The mm -hmm. actual what had happened. But Dita will say, let's just say that it must have been something pretty bad for me to move out of the house after six years together and to pack up my stuff on Christmas Eve. I loved him. And this was the most painful thing I have ever had to go through. It's been really difficult. It's not what I expected when I got married, and I'd felt like I'd found the man of my dreams. But sometimes things change overnight, and you have to make a choice as to whether you're going to respect yourself and say, I am not going to accept this. This is not okay. I'm not the first woman or the last to go through what I'm going through. I just keep reminding myself of that. Wow. You are not the only woman to ever go through this, honey. And Dita is in a position where she has the ability, privilege, monetary means, access, Mm -hmm. right? To get the hell out of a situation that she finds unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, clearly something, my guess would be threat to her physical safety happened. Like you don't. Well, we're going to, we're going to talk about it. Is this not the speculation portion of... (laughs) No, we're not at the speculation portion. I do want to let... Some folks don't have the the money, the privilege, the access to call movers on Christmas Eve day and get the shit out of their house, right? So we have, just so y'all know, added some resources in the show notes 
for organizations that can assist you or people you know, just mm-hmm. some resources. I always like them in my back pocket to assist with intimate partner abuse. It's never okay. And if you or someone you know is in an abusive situation, there are organizations that can assist. Please reach out. Have those just in your back pocket. Always know there are places that can provide some help. Whatever it is that happened, Dita has the shift. She leaves with the cats because she knows the cats are not going to be cared for. They won't get fed. They won't get cared for. And she's gone. There's no need to change the locks because she never goes back to the house. Ever. Not once. Dita's going to file for divorce. You ready for this? Five days later. When the papers are filed, what's cited, do you think? Is it irreconcilable differences? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Marilyn has served papers on his birthday, January 5th. He doesn't have any notice they're coming, so maybe not the best birthday surprise. Was this loudly handled in the media? <laughs> I've got I've got your next question already here. Now, you've seen it. I've seen it. This whole podcast is about it. When couples split, we see a lot of, let's go to the press and each spend our side of things. Not Dita, old-fashioned girl. When she is pinned on specifics, she will confirm this much. Quote, I wasn't supportive of his partying or his relationship with another girl. As much as I loved him, I wasn't going to be a part of that. She will also state that she gave him an ultimatum and said it didn't work. Instead, it made me the enemy. When she is pressed further in interviews about all the media gossip that is surrounding, because it's hot news at the time, she will say, quote, you read a lot of things that are lies and a lot of things that are the truth. And I don't have any interest in correcting all of the untruths because it's better not to, really. It is personal. And I don't want to go accusing. There are two sides to every story. This is 2006. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you know what I'm hearing? Mm -hmm. There's a prenup with non-disclosure clauses. That has to be the only thing possibly in a prenup because she doesn't get a thing. Like whatever happens, she's keeping it really quiet. There are rumors swirling though at the time. Maybe it does have to do with his drug and alcohol use, or perhaps that other girl that she talks about is Lindsay Lohan. Maybe that other girl is Evan Rachel Wood. The divorce is granted December 27th, 2007. Married a year. Divorce takes a year, but Dita will claim no spousal support. Uh, Doesn't get a thing. Doesn't want a thing. Doesn't ask for a thing. Doesn't get a thing. Just... A prenup can say, we take what's ours. Like, there's no community property. It's California. That actually would be... Sure. And maybe part of an NDA mm-hmm. and, like, not really... We're, we're good. I mean, hey, she she may just be the classiest person in the world and is not going to smack talk her ex, and, which is completely commendable. Well, we're going to talk about her statement about what has gone down since Monday, a little bit later in the story, but... Dita's just done. She's go, go, go. Going, going, gone. Just get me out of here. And that kind of is the trashy divorce of Marilyn Manson and Dita Von Teese. A year in and out. Something happened. Sounds terrible. We'll never know. 
But does the story end there? No. (laughs) All right. Dita has a nice update here. She has been dating graphic designer Adam Rajavec since 2014. Good on her. She's happy in that relationship. She's living in unwedded bliss with her partner of seven years and things are groovy. She's like, I don't see any reason to get married. Things are fantastic. Good on you, Dita. Gumption girl. Well done. If I give you trash cans, you're just going to dance on them and turn them into part of your routine. And you're probably doing it in an angel costume. There's, I, I don't see trash cans for her. I don't know if she gets as far as a halo, but I, I, yeah, she does. I, I love her. Get out, go, never look back. What about her ex-husband? Newsmaker. In 2007, the relationship between Marilyn Manson and Emin Rachel Wood is made public. They're on again, off again for a few years. They are engaged in January of 2010, but the engagement will be broken off that year. And just for context, I think he was 36 when she was 18 or something along those lines. A huge... I think he's 38. She was, yeah. Huge age difference. Mm -hmm. Engagement doesn't work out. It's probably irreconcilable differences. In 2012, Marilyn's going to begin dating photographer Lindsay Usich. But in 2015, he'll say he's single again, but apparently not. Because sometime back in 2019, loving the time of COVID, Marilyn and Lindsay married. Hmm. Okay. And that's probably where I would have ended this story. Except. (laughs) This past Monday, Evan Rachel Wood does publicly reveal the name of her abuser. Remember in 2018, Evan Rachel Wood goes to Congress to talk about her abuse. And in her testimony, she described experiences being threatened, being gaslit, and quote, waking up to the man that claimed to love me raping what he believed to be my unconscious body. Fear overtakes her. I was too afraid to fight back. He had threatened to kill me before. She doesn't name him in Congress, but her February 1st, 2021 Instagram statement reads as follows. The name of my abuser is Brian Warner, also known to the world as Marilyn Manson. He started grooming me when I was a teenager and horrifically abused me for years. I was brainwashed and manipulated into submission. I am done living in fear of retaliation, slander, or blackmail. I am here to expose this dangerous man and call out the many industries that have enabled him before he ruins any more lives. I stand with the victims who will no longer be silent. Within just a few hours, at least four other women over the week, many more other women have come out to share their stories that all sound eerily very similar and all terrible. Marilyn Manson has been fired from his record label. He has been cut from a forthcoming AMC series. Naturally, he denies everything, saying it was all consensual and these women are clearly lying and Who would believe them anyway? I'm a rock star and, well, you've been letting me get away with it for 30 years now. Why should I be the one that has to 
change. Okay, he's not saying that necessarily, but he is because Brian Warner, Marilyn Manson, has systematically abused women for years and he writes it all down in his 2017 memoir. Are you serious? Yes. Called The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. Like, this is how used to, in our culture, we are so used to stars behaving badly that he writes it all down and just gets away with the bad behavior. He just tells on himself in a book and then publishes it? Oh, I I, I have stories. Hold on. Oh, my God. It's terrible. Here's... Here is how the book is described in Russia's. If you go to Amazon and read the book paragraph, this is on the book, like what's on the book jacket. The Long Hard Road Out of Hell was the darkest, funniest, most controversial and best-selling rock book of its time. And it became the template, both visually and narratively, for almost every rock book since. Marilyn Manson is not just a music icon, it turned out, but one of the best storytellers of his generation. Written with the best-selling author Neil Strauss and modeled on Dante's Inferno, this edition of The Long Hard Road Out of Hell features a bonus chapter not in the original book. In the shocking and candid memoir, Manson takes listeners from backstage to emergency rooms to jail cells, from the pit of despair to the top of the charts, and recounts his metamorphosis from a frightened Christian schoolboy into the most feared and revered music superstar in the country. I'm sorry, I want to just back up the bus. The darkest, funniest? Whoa. I'm going to share a few terrible stories from this book with you. Okay. I do not see anything funny about it. Thanks, Marilyn Manson, for narrating for the world your terrible treatment of women and your abuse in actual printed text. You write it on up there, buddy. He's going to tell the story of getting rid of a troublesome ex-girlfriend named Nancy by calling her up and telling her, if you don't leave town, I'm going to have you killed. In his own words, I wasn't exaggerating. I began mapping out different ways I could carry out my threat to Nancy with the least possible risk to myself. Ha 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 ha. Murder was planned out meticulously down to body disposal methods. Swell guy. He does decide against killing her. However, when he gets a new girlfriend, he will permit his new girlfriend to beat Nancy up the next time they run into her. Quote, Fucking her up so badly, I'd be surprised if she didn't have permanent damage, unquote. He goes on to say he used to flirt with a girl that he had a crush on by placing anonymous phone calls to her threatening to rape her. He will go on to share one of his, uh, sorry, quote, tricks he's become quite famous for, unquote, which involves tricking women into drinking a full glass of tequila so that they will pass out. Manson will go on to allege that he and Trent Reznor tied up a woman in a hotel room and set fire to her pubic hair. Trent Reznor has released a statement this week denying all of this and doubling down on his dislike for Marilyn Manson. But the thing that astounds me about this, friends, is it's not like he waited until 2017 and his memoir 
and like uh, in a 2009 interview, he yeah. claimed that he called Rachel Evan Wood 157 times in a day, and that he harbored quote fantasies every day about smashing her skull in with a sledgehammer unquote. Yeah, I saw that quote and was like, wow. Um, I know his press people are like, oh, come on. He's a rock star. That's just over the top rock star, blah, blah. That's the character. But I think what we're starting to see is that the character and the person are not distinct. No, we let rich and powerful men get away with a lot. Dita, just to bring her back into the story as Mm. promised, she did release a statement this week about the allegations on her Instagram. She writes, Please know that the details made public do not match my personal experience during our seven years together as a couple. Had they, I would not have married him in December 2005. I left 12 months later due to infidelity and drug abuse. Abuse of any kind has no place in any relationship. I urge those of you who have incurred abuse to take steps to heal and the strength to fully realize yourself. This is my sole statement on the matter. Thank you for respecting this request. Deed is done. Old-fashioned gal, letting it stop there. When people tell you who they are, believe them. Please believe them. Please believe them when people tell you who they are, because they're always going to. And get yourself free. Marilyn Manson has been telling us for three decades now, exactly who he is, I think it's high time to start listening. He proudly boasts of his depravity. Let's stop giving him a pass. Believe women, yes, always. But believe him too. He's been loud and proud about his systemic abuse of women for three decades. Yeah, I think it's... One of the complications is that There are kinks that, you know, this falls into. It just sounds like in more than a few cases, this was not like a consensual, enjoyable kink thing. No, there's really no telling where the story is going to go. In Trashy Tidbits this week, we're going to talk about some of those other allegations and details. We're going to talk about his creepy friendship with Johnny Depp. Like, I can't wait to tell you about their matching tattoos and how they pass the time together. I've got my eye on where this story's going, and it's it's fairly terrible. But Marilyn Manson, you get the Florida swamplands filled with trash cans. All of them. Festering and ripening. Every trash can in the world just sitting in the Florida swampland, man. When you were sharing some of his book um what came to mind for me was the sports journalist like hanging out with interviewing mike tyson and hearing mike tyson talk about his like his sexual conquests Mm -hmm. and the sports journalist explaining like well that's what people do when they hate women Mm -hmm. right and tyson was like wow no one's ever told me that before but that sounds right (laughs) that yeah. <clears throat> I I don't that's their trashier divorce mm. and the trashier behavior story that is continuing to evolve and 
Can we be done now? I want my ticket to ride away from this story. I, I, Friends, um, we, yes, we will be done with Marilyn Manson. We will be right back after a quick break with the tale of another lady looking to find her ticket to ride. See you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondery's podcast, Disentel, is hosted by comedians, Sydney Battle and Matt Belisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disentel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. So from the flip side, Stacey, you're bringing us a, a different kind of tale this week, a little bit more old school. A little more old school. Quite complicated, though, I will say. I have an esteemed American attorney who built a career around fighting against the injustice of police brutality, especially as it impacted African Americans, and became a global celebrity as the lead lawyer in the trial of O.J. Simpson. 
He also had a lot of suits. He also had a lot of suits. <laughs> that did not actually make it into my story, but he did love the fine things in life. When I think Johnny Cochran, I think the rotating closet of it was like 300 suits. or something yeah, right just, yeah he had he any he, he loved to he would fly to new york to suit shop there that was his preferred place to buy suits i mean if you can do it new york city yes johnny cochran's life and career took a turn at the time of the oj simpson trial in which he fully transitioned from you know a serious and well-respected los angeles attorney who would alternate between being in private practice and working for the district attorney's office. Like, he had a really interesting career. I think at one point he was considering politics yeah. uh, as a future endeavor and it just didn't end up going that way, likely because of O.J. Simpson. So, yeah, he kind of transitioned from all of that to sort of a, a polarizing figure that I feel like white people and black people view him in starkly different terms, which is sort of fascinating. Anyway, Johnny Cochran married twice. His first wife, Barbara Cochran Berry, wrote a book after the O.J. Simpson trial in the 90s where she describes the double life her husband led with his longtime mistress, Patricia. What? As well as the verbal, emotional, and sometimes physical abuse she suffered at his hands. Oh, no. Her allegations against him weren't a secret even then. Her complaints in their two divorce proceedings were a matter of public record. A situation that would lead to a bizarre and somewhat comical attempt by Johnny and his father to strong arm her. When reporters came a-calling during the O.J. Simpson trial. Okay. I just knew about the suits. You got to tell me the story. There's so much story. Uh, this is largely drawn from her book. I kind of, the, the more I got into reading her book, the more I was like, you know, there have been millions of words published about Johnny Cochran, like it, from his own perspective, about his professional achievements, about all of that. But like her story is much less known and, and very interesting. Anyway. We'll start with Johnny, though. Johnny Lee Cochran Jr. was born October the 2nd, 1937, uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. Lieberman. Which really makes his professional accomplishments all the more impressive to me. Like, a black kid born in Shreveport in the 30s goes on to be Johnny Cochran. Like, that's amazing to no, me. His contributions to law, extraordinary. Ordinary. Sure. So when he was young, his dad moved the family. There were four kids in total, plus his mom, Hattie West, and they lived for a while in San Francisco. Johnny Sr. was a pipe fitter at the shipyards there, worked his way up, ended up in insurance, and became a salesman for Golden State Mutual, which was the leading black-owned insurance company in California at the Fantastic. time. By 1949, the Cochrans were living a decidedly middle-class life in Los Angeles, and Johnny Sr. and Hattie had extremely high expectations for their children's educational achievements. Johnny Jr., meanwhile, enjoyed debate at Los Angeles High School. And being a cocky teenager, he felt like a, an increasingly strong pull toward the hallmarks of affluence. So he would kind of eyeball the kids who had nicer clothes than he did or drove fancier cars or whatever. He had a dream. Okay. <laughs> As it were. So while young Johnny was growing up, there was a visionary black lawyer in Baltimore named Thurgood Marshall. Uh. And Thurgood Marshall had been taking case after case of, until then, legal anti-black discrimination into courtrooms, including the Supreme Court of the United States, with an outstanding track record that served to dismantle much of the official structure that allowed America to operate as an apartheid state at the time. 1954's Brown v. Board of Education was Marshall's most notable win and 
certainly one of the more celebrated 20th century cases. Absolutely. But all told, he took 32 cases before the Supreme Court, and he won 29 of them. Holy cat! Yeah, yeah. And this is the template that then Ruth Bader Ginsburg used in attacking gender-based discrimination, you know, a decade, two decades later. Huh. Um, okay, I digress. In L.A., this meteoric career and the massive esteem in which Thurgood Marshall was held was not lost on young Johnny Cochran, who graduated from UCLA in 1959, married Barbara Berry in 1960, and then earned a J.D. from Loyola Law School in 1962. Wow. That's fast. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. Very, very quick. The law called to him. He read voraciously about Thurgood Marshall, and he felt like the law gave him two avenues by which he could change the system. He could advocate for what he knew to be right, and then he could challenge the stuff that he knew to be wrong. Like, he could pers- he could be a pincer move right. in fancy suits, basically. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but this is an L.A. story. So, of course, there is a celebrity run-in early on. Um, Johnny Cochran... In his first job as like a low-level, you know, city attorney in Los Angeles, he is assigned to prosecute Lenny Bruce after no. one of his obscenity busts, and Lenny Bruce wins. Oh, my God. <laughs> Johnny Cochran was like, the First Amendment was against me. What can you do? <laughs> okay. We're going to set... J.C. Esquire here on a bench at the Trashy Divorces Depot, and we're going to move on to Barbara, his long-suffering wife, who at the peak of his fame just refused to keep his secrets anymore. Barbara Jean Barry weirdly also hailed from Shreveport. She was a child of Depression-era parents, came into the world on January 14th, another Capricorn, uh, about a year and a half before her future ex-husband. When she was three, an uncle of hers who had relocated to San Francisco and worked there as a Pullman car porter came home for a visit, told her parents about all the opportunities that they and their daughter would have in California if only they'd move. And soon enough, they were residents of Oakland. Fantastic. Little Barbara, young Barbara from Shreveport, she did not like the weather. Aww. (laughs) All right. So she describes this incredibly happy childhood with very loving, very involved parents, like Uh, And then both of them would tragically die before she graduated from high school. Her mother had a stroke when she was a teenager. And like a year later, her father, like just before her 17th birthday, died of kidney disease. Oh, I'm so sad for her. Very, very sad. So her grandmother had lived with them for several years. So Barbara finished high school. She was going through enormous grief. And an aunt in uh, Los Angeles was like, hey, come here for college. Like... Take a break. Rains a lot in San Francisco. <laughs> mm-hmm. Take Just a break. Come on down here. Get, yeah. into, get into some sunshine. Yeah. So, you know, don't have to twist my arm about All right. it. All right. And UCLA is where she meets Johnny Cochran. Uh, she'd been stuck in a zoology lab dissecting a frog. Oh, God. And I guess it took a while and her ride had left. So a mutual friend was like, oh, don't worry. I, I know a guy. He's still here. He He lives over by you. He can take you home. So this led to months of bumping into each other on campus. Before, this is so dumb, Johnny inquired with her best friend if the best friend thought Barbara might be open to going on a date with him. Oh, my. I mean, this is late 1950. I mean, this is, it It all tracks. All tracks. So their courtship was a long one. 
And, you know, their adult lives were getting underway. Barbara graduated from college, started her teaching career. Johnny graduated a little later, went to law school. And, you know, they'd both, it was, it was very casual for a long time. They'd both been, and this was an era where, like, she certainly was not sleeping with anyone she was dating. But so they, they, there were other suitors. And then gradually there were no other suitors. And the two of them were just spending all their time together. So. Okay. In 1959, during what Barbara notes is a period in which all of their UCLA friends were getting married, Johnny proposed, Aww. and Barbara said yes. So it sounds like they were happy enough in the early period of their marriage, but like as they got to know each other better, oh, no. things just eroded. But, you know, they were bright young professionals, Johnny's ambition was boundless, and the world with the civil rights movement and the unrest of the 60s was changing all around them. And Barbara kind of had a front row seat on this. Johnny sometimes was a participant in the changes. So here is uh, like a major case in the, this is the origin story of Johnny Cochran, Warrior for Justice. May, <laughs> May 7th, 1966, a 25-year-old black Angelino named Leonard Deadweiler was driving his wife, who was in labor, to the hospital when he was pulled over. For whatever reason, the cop who approached the car, the white cop who approached the car, saw fit to pull his gun, and for no explicable reason, Leonard Deadweiler was dead from a gunshot wound minutes later. This guy had even tied a white ribbon on the antenna of the car, I think, to signal that he was headed for a hospital. Bef yeah. This, that's terrible. Yeah, this was 1966, and we're still having protests about this kind of thing today. Like, mm -hmm. could we stop? Could we figure out how to not do this anymore? So this occurred just months after the upheaval of the Watts riots. And so, like, everybody was on edge anyway. And then this happens. So the family calls Johnny, who by then had moved into his first private practice. And the city, in an effort to be as transparent as possible, opted to televise the coroner's inquest, where Johnny would be asking questions. The, the hope, of course, was to get the cop charged. Um, right. Did not end up happening. You'll be surprised to learn. But so Johnny, at this point, had kind of already become a pretty accomplished advocate, that little Lenny Bruce thing notwithstanding. So at the inquest, the rules were that all of the questions had to go through a deputy district attorney. So Johnny would be like leaning over and like whispering his questions. And then this public official would then say, and again, on television, like, Mr. Cochran would like to know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or like, it bothers Mr. Cochran that blah, blah, blah. And this was a really big deal. It really, it was the turning point in Johnny's career and sort of catapulted him into celebrity as a black attorney in Los Angeles. Sure. Well, I mean, you're fighting for people who have been so systematically abused by Absolutely. Yeah, that's authorities for... So long. I know. My script, it says suddenly he was David staring down the Goliath of entrenched racism and yeah. all the actions that flowed from it. And again, in the end, no charges were filed against the police officer who killed Leonard Detweiler. But Johnny Cochran fully absorbed the depth of feeling his advocacy in the case had engendered among people not used to seeing someone stick up for them. Wow. Here's like a maybe a new thing for trashy divorces. I don't know. Um, maybe this has never come up before. But it turns out that when a young, successful person suddenly finds him or herself famous, they are tempted. And often they do not resist that temptation. And let me tell you, 
that happened to Johnny Cochran. Oh, that's probably brand new for trashy divorces. Brand new. We've never encountered that before. before. (laughs) So strangely, according to Barbara, Johnny's work hours began to get later and later. Interesting. When he used to be home at the end of the workday, suddenly it's like eight or nine at night. And then it's like... 10 or 11 at night and he's got all these nighttime meetings and last minute briefs he has to write and like then he's got to go out of town on weekends to meet clients in other cities i mean it's just his career's blowing up barbara when barbara would ask about the hours he would play it off or he would lawyer her after one of her friends spotted him in vegas when he was supposed to be in san francisco he was like Barbara, your friends are silly. Why would you listen to them? You're going to believe me or your lying eyes? The world is full of attractive black lawyers. Probably she just saw another one. In pink and purple striped suits that I just happened to buy from New York two weeks ago. What? That's a lie. I wasn't (laughs) there. Yes, it was was gaslighting of a very high level Mm -hmm. fueled by the lawyerly talent for argumentation until you've exhausted your opponent. On the advice of her aunt, in late 1966 or early 1967, Barbara hired a private investigator, (laughs) which is how she came to learn of Johnny's affair with Patricia Sikora, a long-running interracial affair that would produce Johnny's only son, Jonathan, who grew up to become not a lawyer, but a cop. (laughs) Really? Yep. Wow. Okay, so this was the end of round one of their marriage. Like, they separated for a while. She got a restraining order against him. After she called him on the affair, things degraded fast. So the restraining order request says, on April 29th, 1967, my husband violently pushed me against the wall, held me there and grabbed my chin. He has slapped me in the past, torn a dress off me and threatened on numerous occasions to beat me up. Mm. So... Obviously, yeah, this was not the first, nor was it the last time that he hit her. Although it does appear like the separation, when they reconciled, it appears that he did not ever strike her again. So that... Okay. That's good. That's... Something. Something. Yeah. This is all yikes and pinstripes, man. Yeah. So they were separated for a number of months, but it's... Again, they're quite young at this point, and so he and his parents... We're both lobbying her pretty heavily to reconcile. And eventually even her aunt, her cherished aunt, who come to UCLA aunt, right, was like, look, Barbara, he's got good prospects. No man is perfect. Do it for your daughter. Get a mm. baby by now. Mm. Yeah, the baby was Melody. Yeah, so, you know, Johnny earns a good living. Melody will never want for anything. Maybe try to forgive him. Maybe do what you can. What Barbara did not know at this point, again, like Johnny's parents are coming over like, Barbara, you know, that private investigator you hired, they lie. Like, you're paying him money. He's going to keep bringing you stuff if you're going to keep paying him. Like, detectives lie. Private investigators don't really have a reason to lie. <laughs> well, They're working for you. Yeah. What Barbara didn't know, and Barbara loved and respected her in-laws quite a lot was that um, Johnny's parents had met Patricia, the mistress. (gasps) Mm -hmm. And all three of the Cochran's were telling Patricia that Barbara was blocking Johnny's efforts to get a desperately wanted divorce 
from his shrill, shrew wife. I mean, it was... So Barbara's getting gaslit by the whole family. So is Patricia. Oh, my God. They're they're both... It's re- It's a... It's... I mean, you you hear about people living double lives, but rarely do you hear that they've brought their parents into it. Yeah, normally your double life is pretty secret. And your parents would be ashamed of you if they knew about it, but... Yeah, this is a whole different level. Anyway, over the next decade, Johnny had two families. Oh, my God. He convinced Patricia to sell her suburban home and move with her daughter. Not not his, like, daughter from her previous. Right. They met when Johnny repped. Johnny was her divorce lawyer. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yup. I love this podcast. You can't make this shit up. Okay, so, yeah, he, he would just start writing... Well, no, giving her little gifts to help her feel better during her divorce. And Anyway, he convinced Patricia to sell her suburban home and move with her daughter into an apartment close to his office. Convenient. From Barbara's perspective, Johnny's work kept him late into the evening. But from Patricia's, he would leave work, come to her apartment, hang out, help her daughter with homework and have a family dinner. <gasps> Meanwhile, Barbara had given birth to their second daughter, Tiffany, which Johnny played off with Patricia by saying, oh, Tiffany's not mine because Barbara's out messing around. Um, so I don't know. I don't know whose that is. Apparently that guy who didn't want to marry her. And it, it is incumbent on me because I'm a good guy. I need to make sure that that baby is legitimate in the eyes of the law. That's that is so convenient. Yeah. Uh, it was not just Patricia, though. That Johnny was no. stepping he's got out with more than he. He's got a triple life. <laughs> he's yeah, yeah, two and a half, something, oh, something, something. So at banquets and such, again, Johnny Cochran, like meteoric rise of a young black lawyer. Like it's really important that he have a black wife on his arm at events. And so Barbara realizes going to these events, these banquets and such, that like there are women here who are just being really weird with me. And like eventually her friends, you know, in the in that community of people would sort of lean over like, yeah, she's weird with you because she's dating Johnny. It would often be two or three women at an event. It was poor Barbara. Poor Barbara. So uh, she writes about how one Valentine's Day, this Woo! One Valentine's Day in the early 70s, Johnny sends his customary, like, over-the-top flower bouquet thing, and, you know, she has to sign for it. Delivery guy, you know, wheels, I don't know, it's whatever, flowers, brings the flowers to the door, hands the sheet for her to sign, and she knows all the names above hers because they are all Johnny's girlfriends. No. From Johnny. Legal World. Johnny. Yeah. So possibly that same year and possibly a different year, the same thing kind of happened to Patricia. The delivery guy gets to her and she goes to sign it and the name above hers is, is Barbara. Barbara's. And she was completely freaked out because according to Johnny... They had been all the way done for years, and Johnny didn't want to have anything. Place the orders on different days, man. Come on, <laughs> Valentine's You're Day. Gonna lead triple lives. You gotta be smart about it. All of your mistresses can celebrate each other. <laughs> I don't know. So Johnny's son with Patricia was born in 1973, and after literal years of gaslighting Barbara about that affair and all the others. He just came right out and told her that he had a son with Patricia. Just 
He was so proud. He was so happy. Finally. <laughs> and they did not name the baby Johnny L. Cochran III in case Barbara got pregnant with a son. <laughs> she could have the name. Uh. He told her this. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Barbara did not leave him right away, but the decision to leave him for good solidified in her mind over the next couple of years. She knew that he was going to go straight to hardball, like tactics in oh, sure. divorce proceedings. Right. But, you know, again, like the, the violence had stopped back in 67 or whatever when they split up. So like she was safe. She had time to plan. The girls were safe. Everybody was safe. So she was a teacher. She started just squirreling away some money. Good and for her. Mm-hmm. So in the summer of 77, Barbara takes the girls to Europe for a few weeks without their father. And when they come home, she tells him it's over. And he was outraged. Like, you're joking. He's a narcissist. Like, you can't say no to a, like. Dude, go pick one other alternate life you're leading and go do that. Leave me alone. Oh, it. On that note, just wait. Put a a pen and pick one. Okay, so anyway, he's furious, but she finds an apartment that was close to her job. It kept the girls in their schools. She finally met with a divorce lawyer later in the fall, told him the whole story, and he says, you divorced this man years ago. You're just coming to me for the paperwork. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there you go. She had a moving truck thing. There was, it was a Friday. He was supposed to be out of town for the weekend. So when he, one of his alternate girlfriends. Uh-huh. So, yeah, when he left for work on Friday, she had arranged for a moving truck to arrive soon after. The problem was the neighborhood they lived in had like a like a patrol and the patrol saw the moving truck and called his office. And so his secretary like calls Barbara frantic like, are you getting robbed? Are you being robbed or are you moving out? Because mm. Johnny got a phone call. He's real mad. But the other lawyers have told him he can't go to the house. Because nothing good can come of it. So they've taken him to lunch, but you need to hurry. (laughs) Good for that secretary. Yeah. Your house is on fire. (laughs) Take anything you can think of and go. Well, she took all the furniture. Good. She figured he made enough money that he could get new furniture. All right. So the marriage had lasted almost 18 years. And though Barbara left in 1977, the divorce was not finalized until 1981. This was how he tried to make it impossible. Like he, They would just file continuances forever, trying to like starve her out, basically. But wow. she had a job. She had saved up some money. At some point, child support, not much, but like a little bit of child support was ordered by the court. So yeah, she made it through. She left Johnny Cochran. Divorce was finalized, 81. So the story's done, right? Ha ha. So Barbara walked away with way less than she was entitled to because she says she was so worn down by him by that point that... A four-year divorce proceeding? Sure. Well, and 18 years of him lying Mm. and abusing, like... Right. Gaslighting. Yeah, she just... She didn't fight very... Her lawyer kept saying, like, you know, he owns all this stuff that he had you sign away. Like, that can be yours and... It was just things. She says she should have tried harder to get more, but it really doesn't sound like she has a lot of regrets on that. As for Patricia, the other half of the double life, keeping in mind only Johnny had sort of full view of both. Like these two women did not know what was, what the other half was 
doing it all. Yeah, Johnny's the unreliable narrator to each. Yes. Yes, that's a very good way to put it. So when Barbara moves out, Johnny suddenly announces to Patricia that he is fully cutting that mean old Barbara out of his life for good. What a dick. Yeah. So, like, he has Patricia over to what he had always said was his neutral ground bachelor pad where the kids would, he could see the kids and, like... Is it just his home without furniture because Barbara took it all? She walks in and there's indentations in the carpet and no furniture. Oh, my God. And Johnny says... I got rid of all my furniture. It reminded me of her. I want you to help me decorate the house, but you can't move in and I'm not moving out. Like, I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What a jerk. For real. Yeah. And like all of this kind of plays out over the next few years. Patricia starts suspecting that he's seeing other women. Maybe because she's not living with him in a home that she's decorated? Huh. They tried counseling, and uh, this resulted in the experience of a counselor explaining to Patricia that Johnny is a narcissist and that she is his favorite doormat. In 1985, probably trying to smooth over the whole narcissist doormat thing. Also, he's cheating on you. Johnny takes her ring shopping at long last. I mean, they've been together... 20 years. Long, long time now, yeah. For all of her qualms about him, Patricia was a Catholic who had been trying to do right by their son for so long. And it was just a relief to finally get to this point. So what a thing it must have been when Johnny dropped by soon after to let her know he had put that ring on someone else's finger and was married to his second wife, Sylvia Dale. No. Yup. And that nothing had to change with them. She had tricked him into it. He and Sylvia stayed married until his death. My mouth is on the floor. Wait a minute. Some other woman is wearing the ring that I picked out for me after being on your hook for 20 years? That's about the shape of it, yeah. I'm surprised Johnny Cochran was alive to represent O.J. Simpson in 1994. Barbara and Patricia... Became unlikely friends. Oh my God. I love this story. In the aftermath of all this, because Johnny's mother died and she had been so close to both of them that they were both at the funeral. And so Patricia comes up to, Patricia was surprised that Barbara was so little because Johnny had like talked about like she hit him. Like he had a scratch on his shoulder one time and he said that she had come after him with a butcher knife. Together, they were able to sort of piece together that roughly, like, there was like a decade where they kind of shared Johnny Cochran, and they were able to kind of reconstruct the the double-plus life that he was leading. <laughs> ah, Speechless. Yeah. Okay, so we'll jump ahead to 95, and in the media frenzy of the O.J. Simpson case, it was not just O.J. that the press was deeply interested in. Literally everyone Everybody involved in the involved. case from yeah. Judge Lance Ito, a name that I will know until I die because it was on the TV for a year or whatever, to all of the lawyers, to OJ's pool boy, Cato Kalin, why do I know that, was thrust into a massive spotlight and everybody's private lives were laid open for everyone to see. Naturally, reporters went spelunking through Johnny Cochran's divorce filing and the restraining order request from the 60s, where they learned that he was an abuser. Confronted, 
He passed it off as so much legal strategy on the part of his ex-wife to ensure maximum gain in the divorce, which she did not get anyway. Mm. And so he's like, hey, give her a call. She'll tell you. (laughs) So then, and I am not making this up, Johnny called Barbara and said, hey, a reporter is going to call you about our divorce. Do you mind just denying everything? Oh, yes, I do mind. She was puzzled. But she knew him very well and opted not to commit to doing anything. So when the LA Times reporter calls her a few days later, because Johnny Cochran said she would clear the air on the allegations against him, Barbara had the reporter read her the allegations. So the guy reads from the 67 restraining order request. Oh, my God. On April 29th, 1967, my husband violently pushed me against the wall, held me there, you know which I've read, then from the 1977 divorce filing at the family residence on Sutro Avenue, Cochran, without reasonable cause, provocation or justification, physically struck, beat and inflicted severe injury upon the person of the petitioner. He has continued to verbally harass. I fear that unless enjoined and restrained by appropriate court order, he will inflict injury on me. The reporter waited. Barbara recounts how she was flooded with vivid recollections of all of these events and felt them so deeply that it surprised her given, you know, how much time had passed. After considering for a long beat, she told the reporter, I'm not denying anything. And that was that. Johnny was mad about it, but what was he going to do? Like, he had his dad call her. What were they going to (laughs) do? Gaslit me for three decades. Fuck off, dude. You gaslit my friend Patricia. <laughs> you yeah. guys are monsters. <laughs> Johnny Cochran died of a brain tumor at his home in Los Angeles in March of 2005, leaving a complicated legacy indeed. Professionally, he no doubt inspired generations of young black lawyers, but personally, wowza, was his life pretty much a catastrophe. Uh, hopefully Sylvia had a better go of it with him than Barbara and Patricia did. So I am giving Johnny Cochran 1,624 trash cans, but dressed up in the finest custom tailored suits. Perfect. This is the number of miles from Shreveport, Louisiana to Los Angeles, oh, at least at you. according to one route. Well done. Um, Barbara, for her part, gets 1,624 halos. Aww. Well done. And that is, is the trashy tale. The lighter side of a story with some domestic violence. Ugh. Yeah, that's uh that's Johnny Cochran. Yeah, what's funny, like it seemed that he was leading two lives, different personas. Two plus lives. Yeah. My guy tries to pretend he's leading a bunch of lives, but it's really only just the one. That's a good point. Yeah, you're yeah. He is, he's Your what guy, he says he is. There's, yeah. there's no, there's no hidden side. I think that just is. Yeah. Him. Your guy wants to take advantage of the idea that he's playing a character, but he's not. But he's not. He is, he has become the character. Huh. All right. Hey, that is another week <laughs> of a different kind of a trashy divorce story this week. Hopefully we will edit out all of the cat interruptions that we have been subjected to. <laughs> Thank you to our pets for your assistance with this week's episode yeah you guys were super beneficial really we started recording four hours <laughs> seven years ago thanks everybody for tuning in and listening and spending your time with us we will be back next sunday for brand new trash it's valentine's day so we're probably going to do some trashy divorces that 
We love. And in the meantime, if you need more Trashy Divorces, check us out at patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. We'll have Creepy Friendship with Johnny Depp this week. We have some more swans coming to you. I'm going to get into Thurgood Marshall's amazing Supreme Court record. Love Just it. amazing. There's always some fun stuff happening over there. Until we meet again. We meet again. Wash the paws. Oh my gosh. Keep your hands clean. Double masks, friends. Double masks. Everybody stay safe while you're keeping those trashy hearts protected. Until next week. We love y'all. Keep it entirely trashy. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye, y'all. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.